It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing on Westbourne Terrace in Paddington, W2. One street north of the stabbing of PC Jack Avery. Three streets west of Alice Williams' death. Two streets east of the attack on Airman Stanley Thurman. And one street south of the curse of the castrated flasher. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Since construction began on the station in 1852, prostitution has always been part of Paddington's seedier side. There's not a single flat which hasn't been used by sex workers to service their clients. Only now, many brothels are rented out by Airbnb, with their transactions taking place via an app. So as easily as you may order a McMuffin at Mucky Doo's. Someone has ticked Blowy from a drop-down box. Swiped right for a hand shandy. Clicked yes for Doggin. Added a smiley face for S&M, where the safe word is Gerald. And God help anyone who mistakes the pint emoji for the poo. Back in the 1950s, Flat 7 at 32 Westbourne Terrace was a simple, small, fourth-floor lodging comprising of a single room with a bed, a sink, a sofa and a small kitchenette. Rented out to Ruby, a 35-year-old prostitute, and Ernest, her husband. This is where she'd have sex with several men each night for cash. Having driven her to and from the flat to a known picker point. At 12.45am on Saturday the 14th of January 1956, Ernest would claim he last saw Ruby alive as she entered a taxi with an unidentified man. Seven hours later, he would stumble across the body of his wife, having been brutally murdered in her bed. As her pimp, who was flat broke, the only other person with a key to the flat, and a laughable alibi that she was due to meet a man no one had seen, who he knew only as the bearded man. As the police's chief suspect, Ernest was questioned on suspicion of her murder. But was this the truth or a lie? My name is Michael. I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 187, The Bearded Man, Part 1. The most startling detail of this case is the relationship between this husband and wife. Ruby and Ernest Bolton. It beggars belief why a couple who had married out of love would make such a seedy deal in which she sells her body to a slew of horny strangers as her spouse counts the cash and wastes the driver to her next customer. But as odd as it may seem, 
it's a lot more common than you would think. Ruby was born Rubina Pattinson in the summer of 1920 in the city of Carlisle, just shy of the Scottish-English border. We know little of her early life, as even to those who know her, she spoke little of her past. Whether by abuse or abandonment, Ruby always seemed to be running away from something. As a gorgeous girl with a cheeky face, short dark hair and bright red lips, whatever or whoever she was fleeing from was hidden by a personality which beamed warmth and love. Being well-liked, Ruby made a way in life by being sweet, polite and nice. And as a woman who would make a living off her looks, even when she was broke, she never went out without her hair coiffured or her nails painted. Receiving a basic education and living in a city thick with the dark sooty plumes of industry, whereas a woman her options were limited, by the 25th of June 1938, 18-year-old Ruby had moved 92 miles south to the seaside town of Blackpool, where she married a 41-year-old butcher called Richard Moore. Living in a little flat above a butcher's shop on Russet Avenue, they lived a simple life, but it lacked love. In early 1940, Ruby gave birth to a baby girl believed to have been called Jean. But even the prospect of a long life with a loving family of her own making couldn't hold this little threesome together. As the German bombers of the Second World War pummeled the surrounding cities of the North, Ruby became a prostitute. Why? We don't know but it's easy to slip into the Victorian myth that all sex workers were fallen women, whether drunks, druggies, the deranged or the destitute, of which some were, but others were not. The 1940s saw a huge upsurge in everyday women, supplementing their meager income often half of what a man earned for the same job, through sex work. For some women, the simple exchange of a meal, a few drinks and a hotel room for the night, in return for sex, wasn't prostitution. For many mothers, sex was a noble sacrifice for some extra cash or ration stamps to feed their family when life was hard. And for some women like Ruby, given a choice of a pittance washing crockery or a decent wage wanking off maybe 10 men a night, at three minutes a time and earning more per hour than they could per day, it wasn't a hard decision. Prostitution gave them power, money, freedom and control in a world where they had none. Ruby was her own woman, who worked the hours she wanted, when, if and how she decided. And although it gave her a better standard of living, as it often did, it caused havoc with her home and family life. Whether her husband knew, colluded or was oblivious to her activities is unknown. But in 1946, after eight years of marriage, Richard and Ruby separated when she was convicted of brothel-keeping and child abandonment. On paper, it sounds abhorrent. But given that her crimes were recorded by religious zealots, child abandonment was a common offence attributed to many working mothers. And any property could be classified as a brothel if two prostitutes and a maid were together in the same room even if they weren't soliciting for sex at the time of their arrest, but were simply 
having a cup of tea. Deemed by the courts as a bad mother, Ruby lost custody of her daughter. And again, as was the way, she ran from her troubles and moved 240 miles south to London, where she met Ernest. Her husband, her pimp, and the man who would be questioned on suspicion of her murder. To those who knew them, the relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Bolton seemed like any other. Raised and living in Lewisham, South London, 35-year-old Ernest Joseph Bolton earned a living as a driver, and having met Ruby one year before, they married at a registry office in May 1947. Being of a similar age and outlook, they seemed well suited. But their nuptials got off to a rocky start when their marriage was declared null and void, as Ruby was still married to Richard. Divorced, she remarried Ernest on the 21st of June 1949, and they lived in the heart of Paddington's Red Light District. On paper, his job was as a driver who owned his own firm called Ruby Car Hire. But making his money as a pimp, it's likely that this was to hide their immoral earnings under the guise of a taxi firm. Between 1951 and 1956, Rabina Bolton, known as Ruby, was convicted 22 times for soliciting, with Ernest fined 40 pounds and 10 guineas in 1952 for managing a brothel. Unlike her ex, there was no denying that Ernest was a key part of Ruby's life in the sex trade, as for at least the last six to eight years, when she was having sex, he was never more than a street away. Little is known about Ernest or his ways, whether he was violent, coercive, passive or protective. As with prostitutes, there are many types of pimps. Some are nothing more than aggressive bullies who drug, beat and abuse their girls into shadows of the former selves. Some use the old ploy of love to coerce a fleet of lonely ladies into believing it's only him who loves them. To some, it's just a business which they've set up together with the wife doing the sex and the husband as protection. And whereas some are passive underlings, who do their wife's bidding as a bodyguard and a maid. How it was split between Ruby and Ernest may never be known. But as an independent woman with a shared bank account, both names on their flat's contract, and with her deciding how many hours she worked and which clients she saw, it's possible that she set the rules and he did the driving. Mr. and Mrs. Ruby and Ernest Bolton lived in a small rented flat on Porchester Place, a side street between Sussex Gardens and Edgeware Road in Paddington. As a little piece of home where they ate and slept. No sex work ever occurred under this roof, as they kept both sides of their lives separate and distinct. As two sides of the same coin for many years, they had their routine finely tuned and running smoothly. Waking at 10 a.m., their mornings to mid-afternoon was theirs to do with as they pleased. At 7pm, they ate dinner in the home they shared. At 8pm, having dressed, they went to the flat to change the sheets, to freshen the air, to empty the ashtrays, to stock up on tea and milk as everyone needs a brew. They would pop on the fire to make it cosy, the lights to keep it safe, 
and when needed, she replenished the stash of erotic magazines she kept in the flat in case any client had issues downstairs. It was also a neat trick, as by letting him flick through some saucy photos, half of her job was done before she'd even got undressed. Aiming for a 15-minute turnaround per client, sex work is all about efficiency. By 8.30pm, Ernest would drive Ruby to the corner of Hartford Street and Park Lane in Mayfair, a well-known pickup point for West End prostitutes in the shadow of some of London's poshest hotels. As her pimp, he would either wait nearby or would circle about watching out for any passing policemen. In her purse, she carried just enough money for the cab home, condoms of several sizes, and business cards with her phone number on, Ambassador 2385, as well as the name R. Bolton and Plumber, just in case any punter's wife got suspicious. Having done the circuit, if she had already gone or had seen her pick up a punter, he would discreetly follow the taxi back to the Paddington flat and wait until she was done. The routine was always the same. First he would park his car in Gloucester Terrace and wait for her to exit the flats by the side door. Second, when the sex was taking place, she would leave the curtains ajar and the lights on so he knew when she was done. And third, if she was running late, he would call the phone in the flat from a phone box on either Calworth Street or Spring Street to check if everything was okay. Having driven her several times back and forth from Westbourne Terrace to Park Lane and made 20 to 30 pounds a night, roughly 500 to 800 pounds today, they would usually finish up by 2 a.m. But as did happen on occasions, some regular clients would pay to spend the night with Ruby, which was easy money. It may seem odd, but that's how it had been for Ruby and Ernest for many years. Until things started to go wrong. Friday the 13th of January 1956 was typical of the days leading up to her death. As with many couples when money was tight, tempers frayed over the smallest of things. That afternoon, Ruby and Ernest went to the Paddington branch of the Midland Bank with a sense of dread. Their joint account had a balance of just 12 shillings and threepence. Four cheques to the tune of £420 in today's money were set to bounce, and a loan of £12,700 today was increasing daily. Even the basics had become a struggle. The car tyres were bald, the tax was out, the cupboards were bare, and having fled their flat in Porchester Place with the rent unpaid. Two days after Christmas, they had moved into flat 7 at 32 Westbourne Terrace. A small, fourth-floor lodging, barely 15 feet wide and deep, with a sink, a sofa, a bed and a bath, where every night, Ruby would have sex with men for cash. No longer was their home life and sex work separate, as now it all took place under the same roof, his roof, as by the time he would return home, his still warm bed, his now soiled sheets, and his ever faithful wife were sullied by another man's smell, having violated his bride as he had waited patiently outside. 
after the bank, although broke. Ernest drove Ruby to a hairdresser's on Edgware Road. This may seem like a luxury, but as a woman whose lifestyle depended on her looks, it was as vital as buying petrol. Having waited nearby, at 4.30pm, Ernest drove them back to the flat, where, as per usual, they changed the bedsheets, freshened the air, emptied the ashtray, stocked up on tea and milk, and with the erotic magazines a little light, Ruby set aside one pound as she had a contact with a fresh dash of porn. With a few hours to spare, they popped on a small fire to make it cosy, a little light as the winter night drew in, and according to Ernest, they ate their final meal of wild duck, roast potatoes and green beans. A posh meal for a broke couple, which was gifted by an amorous client, as later verified by her autopsy. For almost four hours, Ruby and Ernest were alone in their little flat, and not a single sound was heard by the neighbours through the wafer-thin walls. And having dressed, just shy of 8.30pm, they left. Her final night alive was just like any other. At 8.30pm, Ernest dropped Ruby off on the corner of Hartford Street and Park Lane in Mayfair. To keep himself busy, Ernest would rather patrol the streets looking for police, visit pals for a chat, or do a circuit in the car from Park Lane to Piccadilly. Maybe as much as a distraction from the acts his wife was engaged in. By 8.40pm, as she had gone, he drove back to the flat and waited in his freezing car on the corner of Glossop Terrace and Craven Road. Within sight of the side door, the open curtains and the single bulb shining bright. As inside, on his bed, a man he had never seen nor met rammed his cock inside his wife. With it being improper to disturb Ruby when she was doing the business, he never entered the room when she was working. Besides, he couldn't, as he only had a key to the flat and not the communal door. At 9.10pm, a little later than expected, as her first customer of the night, a man unseen by Ernest, had issues getting Percy Perky. Ruby returned to the car, having made four pounds, roughly a hundred pounds today. According to Ernest, she was her usual self. She made no complaints, and the two drove back to Park Lane to pick up another punter. At 9.30pm, Ruby picked up her second customer. The seedy little routine began again, and although it's unclear how much she earned from this client, it varied from between £3 to £5, depending on what things he wanted to do to her. At 10.15pm, she picked up her third, a man only partially seen by Ernest, but having returned to the flat at 11pm, he saw that the lights were off and the curtains were drawn. With it not uncommon for Ruby to pick up a man between clients, or as many prostitutes did, to pay taxi drivers a little extra to turn a blind eye so they could nosh off a randy man in the dark of the back seat, saving time and money. Ernest waited 30 minutes, rang the bell, but got no reply. 
and returned to Park Lane at 11.40pm, where he saw her, although she never said where she had been. At midnight, Ernest saw Ruby get into a taxi with a man he described only as a little guy, who was a bit too quick to come and paid her two pounds, making her night's takings as much as the average weekly wage. With her finances dire and debtors circling, Ruby had two hours at best to claw in as much money as possible. And although this pick-up spot in the poshest part of Mayfair was surrounded by five-star hotels and exclusive casinos, she rarely bagged herself a rich man with oodles of cash to flash. But as a pretty and pleasant girl, she could rely on her regulars some of whom liked her and loved her. According to Ernest, based on a brief chat he'd had with Ruby that night, at 12.20am, a client she'd given her business card to had called Ambassador 2385 and he asked to stay with her until the morning at a price more than she had earned that night. This would have been music to her ears, but having prearranged to spend the night with a regular from the West Country, she'd had to turn him down. Ernest didn't hear this call as he was waiting outside. At 12.30am, during their last ever 10-minute drive from Westbourne Terrace to Park Lane. Ruby told Ernest, I've got someone here all night. I'm sorry, but you'll have to stay at a hotel. Having agreed that he would return to the flat at 6am, but only if the lights were on and the curtains were open, Ernest would later tell the police, I asked her, is it the bearded man? a mysterious client she'd spoken about a few hours before, who he had never seen, met, or knew his name. And she said that it was. At 12.45am, on the corner of Hartford Street and Park Lane, Ernest dropped off his wife of eight years of marriage to pick up a client for the purposes of sex. In his own words, it was the last time I saw her alive. Where Ernest went over the next 45 minutes is uncertain. As being a lone man in his own car, who was used to keeping an eye out for the police, it's likely he trolled the unlit streets between Park Lane and Piccadilly. And had he passed his flat on Westbourne Terrace, he'd have seen the curtains ajar and the light on until his wife and her client had finished their sex and nodded off to sleep in his bed. Being too late to book in and given their finances, unable to find a hotel room, he stayed at the home of his friends, Mr. and Mrs. Murden, a solicitor and his wife who lived on nearby Rainsford Street. They would later state he was chatty, neat, and slept on the sofa until just before dawn. The next morning at 5.45am, Ernest left Mr. and Mrs. Murden's home and parked up his car on Craven Street, within sight of the flat's window. At 6am, with the curtains still closed and the lights still off, as it was likely she had slept in, he rang the bell to his flat, but he got no reply. As was their routine, at 6.15am, 
from the call box on Calworth Street. He telephoned his flat. But she didn't pick up. Taking a short walk to give her time, to politely get her client to go, from a phone box on Spring Street, he phoned her once more, but again got no reply. Unconcerned for her welfare, he returned to Craven Terrace, and in the local cafe, he had breakfast. An hour later, as witnessed by the tenant of Flat 6, who had heard the phone ringing through the wafer-thin walls for several minutes. Hanging up, Ernest waited outside of the side door of 32 Westbourne Terrace until a passing resident, whose belly had rung, had opened the communal door. None of the tenants heard any strange sounds that night. Nothing had raised their suspicions. And as Ernest, the lodger of Flat 7, rose the stairs to the fourth floor, there were no signs of disturbance. With his own key, he opened his own door, and he entered his own flat, which he shared with his wife. But instead of the room being light and warm, with her there to greet him, it was cold, dark, and silent. The room was, as he had left it 13 hours earlier. No mess, no chaos, and nothing out of place. Switching on the single bulb which hung from the ceiling, in the double divan bed beside the window, he saw the unmistakable figure of his wife. Through the dim light, he called her name. Ruby! Only she didn't respond. He called again. Ruby! Only she didn't move. And being alone and motionless, with her face in the wall and the bedsheets pulled down, he assumed that she was asleep until something made him shiver. Beyond the thick dark clumps of her matted brown hair, up the once white wall by the head of their bed lay the red spatter of dried blood. Having had her skull caved in with a blunt heavy weapon, As her pimp, husband, and the last man to see her alive, what he would do next would make him the police's prime suspect. Having failed to check if she was even dead, he went straight to the home of Mr. Murden, his friend and his solicitor. After an hour of legal advice, at 9.22am, it was Mr. Murden who called the police and not Ernest. The investigation was headed up by Detective Superintendent Joseph Kennedy. To his eyes, the crime scene was as clear-cut as any he had examined. With no forced entry, the victim had either known or trusted her attacker. Being naked and in bed, he had assaulted her, possibly as she slept. With no signs of rape or sexual assault, it was less likely to be a client. With the weapon missing, the murder was almost certainly premeditated. And having been beaten over the back of the head eight times with a blunt object, her killer had hatred for this woman. As for suspects, in the murder of Rubina Bolton, a sex worker known as Ruby, the police had only one. A man whose fingerprints were found at the scene a man whose car was seen loitering nearby, a man who was married to the victim, had prostituted her for money and whose bank account was grossly in debt. 
and with the time of her death established as between midnight and 2 a.m. Although he pleaded his innocence, Ernest had a 45-minute gap in his timeline at exactly that point. With a shaky alibi, it was then that Ernest laid the blame on someone he had neither seen, heard, nor could name. As this mysterious, unidentified client was only mentioned by his dead wife in passing, and who he knew only as the bearded man. Part 2 concludes next week. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Longer, but that's fine. Oh, blummy, blummy, blummy. Oh. oh, Christ. Oh, hello, folks. How you're doing? Can take your little hat off. There we go. There you are. Hope that's okay. Oh, dear. That was harder to record than expected. Maybe it's maybe. I was about to say, maybe it's because I'm a Londoner. Uh, um, no, because this is a morning. I changed my routine this time. Normally, normally what I'd do is I'd, uh, I'd if it's a multi-parter, I'd write one, then edit it. Then I'd, I'd, so I'd write and record one, then edit it, write and record one, then edit it. Because I had a little bit of extra time, I thought, oh, let's write both episodes back, side by side. Uh, which is normally kind of makes sense because it's all in your head but kind of at the same time it's also not the way i like to do it because normally you, rec- you write one and then as you're editing you edit out pieces and you, you think to yourself oh i'll put that piece that should have gone in part one i'll put it into part two and then if it's not in part two i'll put it in part three but this time i can't do that so it's a different system but there we go anyway that was that was boring wasn't it Ugh. right i'm gonna make myself a quaffy why because it's morning it's early morning. Uh, dawn is just gone. Uh, we've just Coot has been an annoying little bastard this morning. Really, really getting up to mischief. <laughs> That's what he does all the time. Little bastard. Uh, Signets were out. They were having a bit of a fight. Goose. The gooses were flying over. The Canadian goose going, eh, 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 as they do. Um, that was my Canadian impression. Right, I'm going to make myself a quaffy. A cup of quaffy. There we go. Boy. Mia. Oh, gas igniter is playing up. It's not always as good as it should be. Right, let's quaffy in. Uh, two sugars, of course. Uh, pop those in there. Um, powdered milk, even though it's nice and cold now, I could actually go for regular milk, but I kind of like my powdered milk. Um, what have I got? What have I got? I've got a cake. I treated myself to a cake. 
I'm still trying to be good on my diet, but I'm just not as good as I used to be. What's this one? A Victoria sponge muffin. There we go. Filled with fruity strawberry jam and topped with clotted cr clotted cream buttercream. Mm. I love the way with these things it says serves two. It's like, fuck off. So it's like it's like when you get a nice Battenberg. All Battenbergs are nice. And on the side it says, uh, it's a wonderful thing. It says, um, one serving is so many calories. It's like they say it's like 140 calories or something like that. One serving, but a Battenberg isn't. It's just it's just a big cake. It's not sliced up. So what is a serving? What is a serving? Like I'm sure some some kitchen boff has looked at it and gone, oh yeah, this liver is 140 calories. Not for me. A big old chunk goes straight in my gob. Lovely jubbly, 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 jubbly. What's going on uh, here at the moment? Not much. Not much. It's getting cold. Some of the other boaters around here have already got their fires on. I saw something on the forum the other day. They were like, "Who? Oh, who's got their fire on already?" And loads of people going, "Yeah, I've had it on for weeks." It's like, it's it's not even October. My fire won't go on, go on till uh, December at least. I think I think you've got a. There's a guy around the corner. He has his fire on all the time, all the time. It's constantly on. And the only day through the heat wave that he didn't have it on was the one day where it topped. It was close to 39 degrees. The day when it was 35 degrees, he had his fire on. Utterly baffling. Utterly, utterly baffling. But there we go. I think that's the difference, isn't it? I'm... I guess that's it. If you're... If you're Scots-Irish heritage, you're used to... Uh, you're used to the cold. Uh, not like these Namby Pambies out there who are like, oh, I need to have my fire on all the time. Like, I, I, I wear shorts all the time. Difference between summer and winter clothes. <sighs> summer clothes, shorts, T-shirt, normally are waterproof, because you never know. Uh, winter clothes means add a hat and some gloves. That's it. Uh, what else is going on? It's all, all, all ahead of schedule, which is good. Um, I've been prepping... So this is the two-parter. This will be a break in the sequence. If you're a patron subscriber and you listen to Walk With Me, you'll already know that. But there'll be a little break in the sequence because uh, I need to I need to finish the research on uh, the next eight episodes to take us to the end of the series. Uh, all very exciting. Some really, really interesting cases that have never seen the light of day by anywhere else. So when everyone else is doing crappy episodes on Yorkshire Ripper or, or shite that you've heard a million times that they've got off Wikipedia... These will be some cases that no one's ever heard of, which is brilliant, which is why I enjoy doing them. So, yeah, so I really need to focus on those. So um, I'm not taking time off. I'm not doing a new blue. I'm doing something else. I'm doing something different. Just want to shake things up a bit. So I've been having fun with that, writing in my spare time, and uh, they will be coming out after you've heard next episode so there we go uh what else is going on uh we've got a manchester show coming up i don't I can't remember when this is going out i think the manchester show might either be happening this week if you listen to this or we might have just gone um a lot of people have said uh will you be doing they've mentioned towns across the uk and places like that and places overseas um unlikely at the moment the problem is we've we've done we, we're starting with big cities like glasgow london we've done manchester and it's difficult to fill those venues it's not like we're doing jimmy car style venues these are these are little venues and even as of the time we're recording this manchester is only an 80 seater and we haven't even half filled that so the likelihood of us going to remote towns in different places is is slim because if we can't fill a big venue or adequately sized venue in a big city the likelihood of us filling a, a little venue in a tiny town is remote and it, don't forget it costs us I live in London, Adam lives in Scotland, Paul lives in Wales. Three people travelling from three, three different countries to come to, to come and do a gig. So it's, it's, we barely break even. So it's unlikely unless we can get the numbers to, to shoot up. So yeah, um, but we got some plans for the future. So there we go. Um, new patron subscribers. So I want to do thank yous to patron subscribers. Uh, we've got uh, some new ones. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, Victoria Knowles. Holly Henschk, Amelia Morgan, and Steph Garver, or Gava. I should have checked that. I looked and thought Gava, but it could be Gava. I apologise. I hope I got everyone else's names wrong. Right, right, not wrong, right. Victoria, Holly, Amelia, Steph. 
thank you so much your patron subscribers and don't forget if you're a patron subscriber depending on your tier you get loads of different goodies you always get crime scene photos you get the uh the photos i upload all the videos uh if some tiers you get the walk with me the exclusive podcast that goes out with this um um what else is on there we loads of different videos i'm about to try and do something new as well so there'll be new stuff there's also a competition each month and you can win kind of a murder mile mug of goodies or you, or you don't have to do anything for you all you've got to do is say i want to win and that's it uh so it's worth doing there's uh i think last time there was uh 40 people submitted to the competition so the odds of you winning across the year are pretty good let's do some quiz questions right as always uh, i may ball some of these up but mm, quaffy right let's go um question number one as mentioned at the start of the episode uh, what are the three nearest murders to this one so i mentioned three murders at the start of the show which is nearest to this one what are they question number two ruby's married name was bolton but what was her birth name? Question number three. Ruby was born in Carlisle, but which recent victim was re- as recently featured in Murder Mile also came from Carlisle? Question number four. She was married in Blackpool to Richard Moore, but as recently featured in Murder Mile, which couple went on a romantic holiday to Blackpool just days before their suicide you can tell i'm picking i'm picking quiz questions that don't ruin the episode because i'm i haven't done part two yet so i didn't want to i don't want to ruin everything by uh jumping ahead question number five how many years was ruby married to richard the butcher question number six how many years was she married to ernest the pimp question number seven Ooh, it's a big question. Uh, in the 1940s and 50s, what classified a property as a brothel? Uh, question number eight. In what part of South London did Ruby and Ernest first live? We've got burpees. Ooh, that's not the answer. Because uh, I had pate on toast. Nice. Uh, question number nine. Uh, why was their marriage declared null and void? And question number 10, which victim of the Blackout Ripper lived nearest to Ruby's flat? So there you go. We'll do answers to those very shortly. I forgot to say, did I do my This Is Extra Mile unscripted, unedited, blah, blah, blah. You, you know the drill. It's just it's just in case people jump in at this point and they go, what's this? He seems to have left his microphone on. I don't understand what's going on. Oh, and then they'll go, they'll go, one star. I would leave naught stars, but iTunes won't let me. They're still my favorite ones. Angry people. There's, I look at a lot of my uh, kind of friends who are other podcasters as well, and they, they get these all the time. And it's it's disconcerting when you get negative reviews, but you just got to suck it up all the time and deal with it. But some of them are just really bizarre. I'd never get it. But for me, the, it's, it's the one star. I would leave naught stars. It's like, what's the difference between naught and a one? Or as I messaged someone recently, they messaged me to email me to tell me that they were leaving a one star. So I wrote them <laughs> I wrote them a really nice email back thanking them for leaving me a one star because each star that they add gets me higher up the chain. And I actually said to them, if you would have left me no review, that would have dragged me down. But thank you for leaving me a one star. That's really helped. No reply. Sometimes you've got to do it. Sometimes sometimes the best way to hit back at someone who's just being nasty for the sake of being nasty is to be nice to them because there's no recourse from that. Right, let's dive into some stuff. I'm not going to ruin too much, but let's. we're not going to dive into the case at all. We're just diving into some background stuff. So Ruby, um, I'm not going to say where she comes from. Uh, her mother's name was Bowman. I didn't mention that in the episode. Um, lovely lady, brown-haired, well-dressed, always well-spoken. Um, I think everyone called her Ruby. Shortening of Rabina, obviously, but she wore red, red lipstick deliberately, and that kind of accentuated her. Um... 93 almost gave away another question then uh obviously she moved to blackpool which is kind of uh what did i say 92 miles south of where she was kind of born um we don't know much but uh from the research i could do her 
it's believed that her daughter was called Jean, uh, who was born in the early 1940s. Uh, that's about as near as I can nail it down. Unfortunately, this was one of those cases where, um, when I started going to the archives ages ago, I found this file, I pulled it out, I got some details out of it, I took some pictures, but I didn't have time to look at it enough. Um, and because I was focusing on other stuff, I put it to one side and thought, I'll come back to it. The problem is it's been redacted since. So the file is no longer available. So what that means is that someone, probably uh, a member of the family at some point, has, has had a lawyer look at it and said, we're worried about the contents in here. Therefore, the lawyer, what the lawyer can do is either redact some of the details or redact the whole file. So the whole file has been redacted. So... A lot of these details, unfortunately, I had some of them, but then I've had to work out the rest. Oh, really confusing. So, uh, yeah. Um, uh, Ruby and Richard uh, divorced 5th of December 1947. Uh, divorced on account of her misconduct. It was kind of... We don't really know much about this case. There wasn't a lot in the press about it. What was known that she was convicted of brothel keeping, but as is one of the questions. Um, brothel keeping... It's a real misnomer in kind of the 1940s and 50s. It's like if you a policeman could decide that you were a prostitute, even if you weren't seen picking up a client. So basically, if a policeman saw a woman who didn't have a chaperone with her, because we're still in the era where women either chaperoned each other or they had to have a man with them. It's that kind of era. If a woman was by herself, that would be seen as odd. Even if you look at the papers in the 1970s, there's a paper that I saw over in Paddington and there's a big furore because two women went into a pub. That's it. That's the story. Two women went into a pub. Two women not accompanied by men and it was a big old scandal. 1970s. We kind of forget that in our era we still have that kind of shit going on. So, uh, yeah. Um, so uh, a policeman could basically, if he saw a woman uh, in the same place three times by herself he could classify her as a prostitute so therefore she would be convicted of prostitution brothel keeping is one of the questions so that pops up in there later on um with Ernest, he was convicted of running a brothel but see technically he is running a brothel because his wife is in there selling sex and he's he's on the uh the contract uh with her so therefore he is running a brothel by default but if he didn't know anything about it, that's still redundant. He's still a brothel keeper, even though he knows nothing about it. So, yeah, it's 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 a really, really tentative thing. And uh, as for child abandonment, because, because she was a working woman and because the job that she was doing wasn't deemed to be decent, therefore, if she was leaving her her child with a childminder or another prostitute as tends to be the case quite often they would work work in shifts and kind of look after each other's children work with them therefore that's classified as abandonment because it would be deemed that the babysitter was not worthy so it's re so yes she may have abandoned her child yes she may have been running a brothel but it's uh, what i've tried to do with this episode is make it clear that not everything is crystal clear you can't you can't just you can't just pin things down and just put a pin in it. It's it's all very difficult. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Ernest Joseph Bolton, as we know, that was his name. Let's see. Uh, uh, let's see if we've got some other stuff. They uh, lived in a couple of other flats dotted around. Um, they lived in uh, Jacob's Well Muse in uh, Marleybone for a little bit. The problem is every time that... Um, because she was convicted uh, 22 times, well, she was recorded 22 times of committing solicitation, which is picking up clients. Uh, her last one being on the 29th of April, 1954. So that was her last conviction. That was a year and a half before she was murdered. Um, so, yeah, they moved around a lot. So it's really hard to pin down. They, they Everywhere was rented. Everywhere was cheap. Everywhere seemed to be in kind of known prostitute areas. Uh, uh oh i almost let slip with something then <sighs> not not a body burp or, or a burpy burp but you know so i almost said something that gives away the stuff for the, the second episode i have to say i have enjoyed writing this episode it's 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 been an interesting one i'm not going to give away too much um things i didn't add into the episode uh she had uh uh, marks on her bottom uh, a lot of bruising and that's because she suffered with low blood pressure and often passed out they tried to kind of uh, attribute this 
to her murder, but there, there doesn't seem to be anything that kind of connects them together, so I've left that out. We don't know where they lived on Porchester Place. I've gone through the electoral roll and things like that. We don't know where it was because they because it was rented and they did move around a lot. So we don't know where their original flat was, uh, but we know that they were definitely in flat seven. Uh, Ernest Joseph Bolton, uh, he was described as a motor driver. Uh, what else have we got? I know 35 years old, so almost the same as Ruby, born in 1920, same year. Um, He'd been a motor driver for a few weeks uh, and he'd been operating a car hire business under the name of Ruby Car Hire. But we don't, I, I've checked, I don't, there doesn't seem to be any business records for this. This seems to be like a lot of kind of mini cab firms where it's a bit of a nudge, nudge, wink, 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 you know this. Um, 22nd of February 1952 at Marleybone Magistrates Court, he was fined £40 and 10 guineas uh, or three months imprisonment for managing a brothel. I've checked more on this because it's one of those minor offences. There's very little reported about it. So it's kind of uh, it is what it is. Um, but he seems to be living either, as the police would state, either wholly or in part of his wife's immoral earnings. Um, as mentioned in the episode, we really don't know much more about uh, their relationship. We don't know what... This is why I've tried to clarify the difference between different types of prostitutes and different types of pimps. We don't know what the relationship was between them. I think there's always a kind of a misconception of prostitutes and pimps that they're, they're, we have this Victorian idea that all prostitutes are fallen women, all prostitutes are on drugs, all prostitutes are alcoholics. Uh, all of their pimps are kind of domineering and, and kind of forcing them forward. But the more I research into these cases about uh, prostitutes and, and pimps and things like that, the more I'm kind of learning that it's the world that we've been fed by the media over the years and all that everything we see especially on these documentaries and shite about jack the ripper oh, oh jack the fucking ripper utter shite um the more that we realize that it, it we're still living in in the victorian era of that kind of mentality whereas when you start looking at it that's why i've tried to be more kind of proactive with this looking at the business side of it looking at about the relationship between these people because if you think about it if you're if you're if you're a husband and wife and you're uh, she's the prostitute and you're the pimp, are you gonna beat her around the face if she's not earning enough money? No, of course you're not because because like that's how you earn your money by her looking good and a man going oh I want to have sex with her. Whereas if you if you beat her about the face and she's all bloody and bruised, you're not gonna earn money. It's like you know if you if you're deranged or you're on drugs, that's what you'll do. But if if for many people if you see this as a business thing. Uh, that's so. It, it, do you know what it was? Uh, I'll mention this shortly, but it was the book West End Girls that uh, uh, Paul, one of our listeners, had, had mentioned a while ago, and it was about uh, a Soho sex worker and her maid. And it's a really fascinating book to, to kind of because the maid is kind of new to the situation, and she's kind of innocent. She's still a virgin when she gets into this job. She, she's never had sex, and yet she enters this world of, of prostitution, and it's. It opens her eyes because she'd always been told about how oh it's dirty and you know creepy and you know uh, you know you'll get you'll get murdered there. But the more she gets into it, the more she sees the relationships between people and that it's very business focused and that they have routines and they have morals and it, you know it's it's a. I think it's one it's one of those interesting books where it's never been written because people people are just like oh I don't want to know about that I just I just want to believe all the Jack the Ripper stuff where they were gin soddened whores and they deserved to die you know I think that's one of the reasons why one of the many reasons why I think all the Jack the Ripper shit should go and be flushed down the toilet it's just utter shit oh have I said that enough utter shit um Ernest um, he died uh, in 1994 in Gravesend in Kent. Uh, we don't know what he, what uh, happened any more after that. Actually, I'm not going to say any more about that because uh, we've still got next week's episode to go. Um, their financial situation, so let's try and clarify that. Uh, they they banked with Midland Bank. Oh, I remember those. I've, I've got my... Um, next to me, I have my dictionary from Midland Bank from the 1980s, and inside it is signed uh, by some of my friends from uh, secondary school. Still got that. Uh, so uh, they, had a, they had a joint account, 
The credit on the account was 12 shillings and three pence, which is roughly 12 pounds a day. Uh, they'd issued four checks, which were due to bounce. Uh, one for 11 pounds, 11 shillings and nine pence, which is 110 pounds today. Another for four pounds, four shillings, uh, 90 pounds. Three shillings, which is 60 pounds. Uh, three shillings, uh, 15 uh, three pounds 15 shillings and three pence which is about 62 pounds um they're my rough estimates on those uh so the account was due to be overdrawn by uh, the equivalent today of 420 pounds which is a lot um they'd also taken out a uh, a private loan from a friend uh who worked who was a foreman and that was for 479 pounds which is today roughly twelve and a half thousand pounds so it's a lot of money they're in a lot of debt uh we don't know much about this foreman we don't know whether he was a kind of criminal on the side or a pimp we know nothing about him so uh they were in a lot of financial trouble uh i think that's it i don't want to go into too much let me just see if there's anything that's missing um in a handbag uh that night she had her business cards as mentioned on the business cards was um they were always given out. So you give out your business card, but it wouldn't say, call me for sex work. It would be, so hers was R. Bolton, plumber, and then Ambassador 2385, which was her number. So so men who were going out picking up prostitutes, they, if their wives would go through their pocket, they would see a card and they wouldn't think, oh, he's visiting sex workers. They would all be discreet. So it would all say plumber, carpenter. Some of them were a little cheeky. Some of them would say tool merchant very good tool merchant uh in her bag she had two yale keys as well uh one for the outer door one for the inner door but as we know ernest only had a key to the inner door the door to the flat uh inside her bag as well was uh her purse her makeup and an envelope in which she placed the money she earned we're going to dive into the uh, more about the clients next week the people she met but she did all right that night. She uh, she she earned between kind of two pounds to five pound per client, depending on what they what they needed. They would pay for the taxi to and from uh, her flat. If you think about it, even though she's in an area where there is uh, a hotel, because it's expensive to rent a hotel, it's actually cheaper to rent somewhere cheap like Paddington uh, and then get the man, uh, the client, to pay for the taxi. Um, I think that's it. I don't want to go into too much because next next week there's a lot, and next week uh, we dive into all the stuff to do with the murder as well, uh, and some other interesting stuff as well. So I'm I'm gonna stum. I'm gonna stum. Let's do the quiz questions. Uh, let's see how many you got, and let's see how many of them I bulged up. Uh, question number one: As mentioned at the start of the show, what are the three nearest murders to this one? There was uh, PC Jack Avery, that was over in Hyde Park. Uh, Alice Williams, who was the cafe owner, uh, the fight with the lady who was the prostitute. Uh, and Stanley Thurman, who was the US airman. Question number two. Ruby's married name was Bolton, but what was her birth name? It was Pattinson. There you go. Question number three. Ruby was born in Carlisle. But which recent victim, as recently featured in Murder Mile, also came from Carlisle? Uh, she was Gillian uh, Bennett uh, in episode 185, recent, uh, Driven to Distraction. That was the, uh, the lady who uh, bought a Fiat off uh, that uh, weird Eddie Murphy wannabe. Uh, question number four. Uh, Ruby married in Blackpool to Richard Moore. But as recently featured in Murder Mile, which couple went on a romantic holiday to Blackpool just days before their suicide? Again, this is from this season. Uh, they were Mabel Hill and Herbert Turner, the suicide pact in the Regent's Palace Hotel. Question number five. How many years was Ruby married to Richard the Butcher? Eight. Question number six. How many years was she married to Ernest the Pimp? Eight. Two lots of eight. Question number seven. In the 1940s and 50s, what classified a property as a brothel? 
Um, this was any property could be classified as a brothel if two prostitutes and a maid were together in the same room, even if they weren't soliciting for sex at the time of their arrest, but were simply having a cup of tea. Uh, I learned this from that that really good book that was mentioned by Paul, which was uh, West End Girls by Barbara Tate. Uh, really good book. Definitely worth uh, worth reading or uh, I think it's on uh, Audible so you can listen to it. Uh, question number eight. What part of South London did Ruby and Ernest first live? That was Lewisham. Question number nine. Uh, why was their marriage declared null and void? Uh, because she was still married to Richard. And question number 10. Which victim of the Blackout Ripper lived nearest to Ruby's flat? It was... Oh, it was Doris Junet. Uh, so the, the technically the fourth lady he murdered, but also the last lady he attacked. Uh, she lived at the end of... Um, so Ruby lived at the near the end of Westbourne Terrace... And Doris lived at the end of Sussex Gardens, so they were about um, half thirty seconds apart, if that. Good. So I hope you enjoyed that, folks. Um, this is part one of two. Part two next week, obviously. I always find it fascinating when people go, "When's part two coming out?" And it's like I release an episode every Thursday at four a.m. I always have done. And people always go, "Yeah, but what about next week's episode? When's that coming out?" It's like it's next Thursday at four a.m every episode every episode thursday at 4 a.m always oh he says except except uh the ones after this series finished uh change to the sequence but that, that that's just an anomaly right that's me done i'm gonna have a coffee i'm gonna have a cake i'm gonna go to costa and do my rough edit of the audio on this i always go through and clean get rid of all the mistakes get rid of all the all the clicky sounds and all the horrible stuff that takes about a day i like i like the audio to be nice and clean nothing worse than these podcasts where people are like so so uh, anyway yeah yeah horrible right that's me done have yourself a good week folks stay safe and be good lots of love don't get murdered bye Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.